is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And we love telling stories about entrepreneurs, small business people trying to live their American dream, grow their businesses bigger, and have their families prosper and their communities. And our own Alex Cortez went to a fascinating event called Open Call, where Walmart opens their doors to over 500 entrepreneurs to pitch their American-made products, all in hope of getting into the retailers over 11,000 stores. It's a great democratization of the buying process for folks who may not know anyone at Walmart, and it's a part of Walmart's commitment to buy an additional $250 billion of American-made products in a 10-year period. And Alex now brings us the story of a praline proprietor he met there named Suzanne Hart. I'm Suzanne. This is my mom, Kay, and so it's named Katie Sweet. We're all scared of her, I'm just going to say that. She's an accountant by trade. The numbers match. It's We're all responsible. So, just as an example, how expensive was their hotel bill last night? It was way high. We're going to hear about that. Yeah, because, um, yeah, we should have brought the car and stayed in the car. <laughs> dinner, we had crackers. We started with her grandmother's recipe. She and my dad started a company in 72, basically because my grandparents were ill and they stayed home to take care of them. My dad was a gourmet food salesman. He had to work out of the garage at that point so they could be there for them. We all lived with them, and then uh, they just, we ship about 300,000 pounds of candy a year. We have 60 employees now, so we have 30 for this company, we have 30 for another company, and some people have been there 30 years. So we're the second generation coming into it. It's, it's really hard to have your own company. I mean, it's very hard. You work a ton of hours. There's no guarantee. Everybody gets paid before you do. And, you know, uh, you have to plan for everything and stuff happens. But you're responsible. You get your finances in order and you mind your finances and that detects everything you do. You can't go too forward because you've got a lot of people that you're responsible for. Including her four kids, the third generation who grew up in the business. And my little boy messes with their business calendars where he goes and writes his name across all of them. Yeah, that's not a good thing. They get to live well in text and, um, you know, they tell us how we could do it better. Um, they tell me how to do Instagram because I put their pictures on there and I had to take them all off because I could be business oriented. You know, they, they, they're so critical. And at that very moment, one of their kids texted them this. In the cool kids club, yet yeah. okay, that's my 17 year old, yeah. She's, um, cool yeah. kids club, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, we're not, no, they let us know, no, yeah. Thankfully, Suzanne's fans do speak to her more sweetly. We have people all over the country that call us, and I have a little fan book that I talk to everybody with. They write to me, and I write back, and I send them little Texas tins, and you know, that we we all talk, it's very nice. They visit, they bring flowers it's kind of really i'm not kidding <laughs> your customers bring yes, your flowers? yes they do yes it's that good yeah and yeah it's a whole it's it's a it's a family business and uh we share it's like a reality show without the show okay and we're nice to each other because it's more effective to be nice to someone and respectful and get the job done than you know 
But what I really wanted to know more about was this fan book thing. People will call in and they start asking about the product and they see it somewhere and they want to buy it, but it's like an individual at home and they, they don't have a credit card and they want to write a check and I'm like, okay, let me send you a couple of samples and then they're like, they write like thank you notes with real mail and everything's very sweet and then we talk and then you know, you hear about the weather in Wisconsin, or there was a gentleman in Detroit that liked it, and then there's a man with Alzheimer's that his family bought it for all of his nurses because he requested it with the Prowlings in Texas. And then I have a lady named Sugar whose real name is Carlene, Carl and Lean, okay? And she's in California, and we're friends, we talk, and she's in a assisted living, and we ship out to her, and it's fun. I mean, they, they all come by and let us know how they're doing. They're very nice, I mean, they're very sweet, and they're, they just want to talk. People just want to be heard, seriously, they, and they like getting mail, and they want to know that you're not just a service thing going, yeah, whatever, and blow them off, you know. So it seems crazy that as the owner of a business, Suzanne is spending so much time chatting it up with fans, but Suzanne sees it as anything but crazy. Well, I need to do that for me because it keeps me real with, and plus people tell me what's going on. They tell me how my front people are answering the phone, how the product arrived, and I listen. People will tell you exactly what's going on. They'll tell you if they can't look at your website, if your website's not up to par, you know, if it's hard to shop on, they tell you and we fix it. So I, and then sometimes I call them just to ship them something and ask them what they think, and then they give me the whole rundown. They will tell you exactly what you may not want to hear, but you're hearing it from someone. I was curious, how many of these regulars does Suzanne have that she's talking with? I don't know. Probably, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Between you don't need to mumble 20. it. You could say it. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's a, we're all friends. We talk a lot. And, you know, and I let everybody know if they call in to put them through to me no matter what. And we talk and I stop what I'm doing. It's a lot of fun. It's I'm very blessed on that because they keep you real and then you have to know your customers. And when you lose sight of that, you really shouldn't be in the business because that's who's buying your product. Does that sound kind of cliche? It's true. It's true. It's really true. I mean, everyone's money is green and everyone's trusting you with with what, you know, that you're ensuring what you're giving them. It's, a, it's a, an honor. And before we forget, how did their pitch meeting go? Well, Walmart's buyers were interested enough to invite Katie Sweet to come back and this time to show them all their products. A great sign for this small business. And if Walmart moves forward with bringing them in the stores, Suzanne thinks it'll enable them to create 10 to 15 new jobs. Adding 10 jobs in our area is a very big deal. Yeah, and we have a 24,000 square foot warehouse that we can build into two stories to run like three crews. And we're approaching that as we go into like double shifts. Growing pains are hard. That's the hard stuff. Talking to people is fun. You know, <laughs> running two crews is <laughs> lots of logistics. And great job as always, Alex. And my goodness, open call at Walmart. Hundreds of folks like Suzanne Hart trying to get their product nationwide. And what a thing to do. Again, a commitment to $250 billion worth of American-made products in a 10-year period. Suzanne Hart of Katie Sweet. You can learn more about her yummy pralines by going online to katiesweet.com. Suzanne Hart's story and open call stories from Walmart here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We tell stories about everything here on this show, from sports to arts and from business to history. And this story, well, it's the latter. It's history. In the nation's capital, the sun glitters on stone monuments to our first president, George Washington, and our third, Thomas Jefferson. John Adams, the second president of the United States, was every bit as brave as the former and as brilliant as the latter, but there is no such monument for him. Yet no one, not even Washington or Jefferson, did as much to convince the colonies to break from England. Perhaps this is fitting because Stone is cold and he was anything but. Alas, we must see that the United States alone serves as the proper living monument to this intense, cranky, warm heart on his sleeve founding father. What we are about to do now is precise. Instead of telling the all-encompassing story of John Adams, we are going to dial it in on one specific moment in his life, one that best captures this man's humanity and ideals more than any other. And as we will soon learn, Adams himself will agree with our selection. Here to give us a quick overarching Reader's Digest-like version of Adams is none other than author and historian David McCullough, the man who's written the definitive biography of John Adams, the book in which HBO based its 2008 award-winning miniseries. Here's McCullough answering the question, what event most personified the life and character of John Adams? I think it's the, his defense of the uh, British soldiers in the Boston Massacre trial. That's where you see what that man's made of. Here was a man who was on the political rise. He was brilliant, he was well-read, he was tenacious, he was a very skillful practicing lawyer, and young still. And then the soldiers were captured and they were, everybody in the whole Commonwealth were looking forward to having them executed but they had to be represented in a trial and no one would represent them. No one would defend them. And Adam said, if we really believe that everybody deserves uh, legal defense in a trial, we better live up to what we say we believe. I'll defend them. And he did so certain that it was gonna ruin any ambitions he had to play a part. And he had a terrific wife. He's the only founding father, most people don't know this, but I think it's so important. The only founding father who never owned a slave as a matter of principle. And his wife felt the same way. She saw that slavery was a sin, evil, unjust, un-American. And they never changed in that point of view whatsoever. Let's now take a deep dive into the story of John Adams and his legendary defense of the British soldiers at the 1770 trial of the Boston Massacre. Here's Greg Henry. It takes slightly more than four decades from the first rumblings of discontent for the 13 loosely aligned colonies comprising New England to be transformed into one of the largest and most prosperous nations on earth. It starts with a simple idea that all men deserve to be treated equally and becomes the great experiment that will change the world. 
But before the anger of colonial Americans boils over into the most epic of revolutions, it begins as a daily struggle. In all 13 colonies under British rule, at the epicenter of the struggle is the seaport city of Boston. By 1760, 130 years after being founded by the Puritans, Boston is thriving. While in theory, its commerce is regulated by the British trade laws, in fact, these laws are rarely enforced. That changes in 1761 with England's economy struggling thanks to the 10,000 British troops protecting their American colonies from the French. Here's historian Andrew O'Shaughnessy and screenwriter of the 2008 HBO miniseries John Adams, Kirk Ellis. The reason that they taxed America was because of the French and Indian War. It so bankrupted the British Treasury that there had to be ways in which they could make up for this lost revenue, and they decided to tax the colonies. But, as they've always done, Americans ignore the taxes. So Britain takes action. New tax laws and anti-smuggling searches turn revenue collection into combative encounters. Here's historian Andrew Nelson. And this includes something called the Writs of Assistance, which is essentially a warrant where the British can search anyone's property freely. The British Army is no longer in America to protect colonists. It has become an occupying force. Along with invasive laws allowing search and seizure, England responds with the Stamp Act of 1765, a broad tax targeting every American colonist. The Stamp Act required that all official correspondence from newspapers to documentation, even playing cards, had to be produced on paper that bore an official stamp purchased from a customs agent. Even though it isn't described as a tax, it's of course a tax. And this leads to opposition. When most people think of the Founding Fathers, they envisioned wig-wearing politicians debating on the floor of some legislative body. But they in fact did their organizing in a bar, a tavern in Boston called the Green Dragon. The Boston Tea Party was planned here, and Paul Revere was sent from the Green Dragon to Lexington on his famous ride. It is here where their fight begins. Not yet for independence, but for the equal treatment under the law as the British citizens they believe they are. Behind the power of these laws, English customs agents begin ransacking homes and businesses. A group of patriots formed to fight British oppression, most notably the Stamp Act. They call themselves the Sons of Liberty. Sons of Liberty is an association of men who are looking to prompt situations that will lead to a disturbance that will force the attention of the Crown. The Sons of Liberty weren't just in Boston. They were very quickly organized and strewn throughout the original 13 colonies. The founder of what could be called General of the Sons of Liberty is John Adams' cousin, 43-year-old Samuel Adams. Here's colonial historian Marvin Kitman. Sam Adams was a real rebel with a cause, and the reason for it was in his personal life. He had been a failure in everything that he did until the revolution. 
His father gave him a lot of money to start a business. He lost all the money. He's one of these people who become obsessed with a cause and just put their personal life aside. If Sam Adams is the general of the Sons of Liberty, his colonels are John Hancock, the wealthiest man in Boston and the second wealthiest in the colonies, and goldsmith Paul Revere. Legend relegates Revere as a mere lookout who shouts from the top of a horse. But Paul Revere is both a salesman and a strategist, a multi-talented patriot who organizes tough men into a force for liberty. As the atmosphere in Boston turns incendiary, Paul Revere leads something of a guerrilla army that uses tactics of fear and violence intent on intimidating the king's tax collectors out of existence. What is known as the Stamp Act riots spread quickly throughout the 13 colonies. Here's historian extraordinaire Tony Williams. They were tearing down the stamp collectors' homes. They were burning these customs officials and the royal governor in effigy. And so there's a great deal of popular enthusiasm and even violence. The Stamp Act riots renders the man enforcing British rule in Massachusetts, Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson, powerless to collect taxes. With no colonial taxes being collected, the British Parliament is in a state of panic. Here's historian David Eisenbach. You have to remember at Parliament, they're dealing with an empire that is stretching all around the world. If they allow the abuse of tax collectors in Boston, that would encourage lawlessness all around. They decided we've got to make an example by putting more troops in Boston to kind of clamp down on the troublemakers. And what a story. And when we come back, this story setting up, well, like a showdown, like high noon. And we're putting you where we always put you, right there on the streets, in the context, in the history itself. When we come back, more of John Adams' story more of the story of the Boston Massacre trial and the circumstances that brought us there. John Adams' story here on Our American Story. American stories, and we return where we last left off. Boston is under military occupation by the British troops trying to clamp down on colonial troublemakers. Here's Greg Hengler. Oh, there's no turning back for me. England dispatches two military regiments to Massachusetts from New York to keep order, adding fuel to the fire. Boston is now under military occupation. There's no turning back now. In 1768, four more regiments sailed from England to Boston. By 1770, 2,000 British troops occupied this city of 15,000. For Paul Revere, the occupation of British military presents an opportunity. 
he creates a propaganda piece he calls Landing of the Troops. As it travels throughout the colonies, so does the fear of military occupation. With a British army camp in the center of their city, Bostonians have a constant reminder of their own repression, while rank-and-file British soldiers start to wonder who has it worse. Here's historians H.W. Brands, Andrew Nelson, and Denver Brunsman. These British soldiers are a long way from home, young men who are frightened. Most of them have hardly the slightest idea of what the political debate is. They're told by their officers, you need to keep the peace. For many of the soldiers arriving, America had been a faraway place that you read about in the newspaper. But when they get there, they see what all the fuss was about. This really is a suggestion of a much better life than America. So desertion becomes a serious problem. One hallmark of a professional army at this time is a high state of discipline, physical, you know, corporal punishment for various crimes. And the punishment of choice was the lash. Punishment for desertion could bring up to 250 lashes. Contrary to popular history, the derogatory term of lobsterback for British soldiers doesn't have anything to do with the red coats they wear. The term comes from the welts and the scars many men have on their backs from being whipped. The flame that will ignite the American Revolution is lit on Thursday morning, February 22, 1770, when, according to the Boston Gazette, a barbarous murder was committed on the body of a young lad of about 11 years of age. Christopher Sider is a young rebel in a Sons of Liberty offshoot group known as the Liberty Boys. So Sam Adams' idea to protest the taxes is to get all of the colonies together to join in on a boycott against English merchants. The Sons of Liberty proclaims that no British goods will be sold. Not everybody adheres to that boycott. Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty are not above marking that place with manure on the door. They're not above breaking the windows of that place. That dark morning, Cider and a crowd of 60 young men marched defiantly through Boston's cobblestone streets with a cart overflowing with rotten fruit used to mark the windows of those merchants who refused to respect the boycott of all British goods. These British sympathizers are known as loyalists or Tories. Walking down the street, the mob sees Ebenezer Richardson, who was an informant to the customs house about uh, various merchants who were not paying their taxes. Get him! Stopping in front of Ebenezer Richardson's house, the young men begin throwing rubbish into his yard. The rubbish is thrown back by Richardson's wife, Kezia, but soon, Rocks are hurled, and the Richardsons retreat into their secure home. As the intensity grows, windows are shattered, and an egg hits Kezia. Richardson grabs his musket loaded with swan shot and stands defiantly musket high at his second-story window. He fires once. It is intended to be a warning, he later swears, but Christopher Sider is hit in his chest and abdomen by 11 pieces of shot the size of large peas. One of our Liberty Boys. Most people believe the Revolutionary War is triggered by a shot from a British soldier on Lexington Green, but the conflict is actually set into motion five years earlier 
when Liberty Boy Christopher Sider becomes the first American martyr to die for the cause of freedom. There's nothing I can do. Samuel Adams made this into a huge public spectacle, and there was a great deal of anger in Boston. They stage an incredibly elaborate funeral with a bedecked coffin that gains mourners as it passes through town. Among the more than 2,000 Bostonians who attend the funeral is John Adams. Here he is from his diary. Mine eyes have never seen such a funeral. This shows that there are many more lives to be spent if wanted in service to their country. This shows, too, that the faction is not yet expiring and that the ardor of the people is not to be quelled by the slaughter of one child. It's in full view, this outpouring of sentiment over the loss of one individual who symbolizes the promise of what many people think should be an independent nation. This boy's death becomes propaganda for Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty. And this is like a match to light the fuse that will explode into the American Revolution. In the days that follow the funeral, tension in Boston reaches a climax. On the frigid, moonlit evening of March 5, 1770, less than two weeks after Sider's burial, an angry, boisterous, and mostly intoxicated citizen mob roamed through the snow-covered, cobbled streets, hurling insults and threats at British soldiers. Two Bostonians break into two meeting houses and begin ringing the church bells, the alarm for fire, and almost at once crowds come pouring into the streets. The city is alive with danger. By 8 o'clock, two British soldiers are attacked and beaten. Then, a large mob of colonists, as many as 200 strong and armed with sticks and clubs, gather in front of the Custom House on King Street, guarded by a lone British sentry. The time is shortly after nine. Words are exchanged and the sentry strikes a Bostonian with the butt of his musket, knocking him to the ground. The British want to demonstrate that we hold the power and you guys better do what we tell you to do. Captain Preston leads out the guard. They form around the front of the customs house. And at that point, the situation escalates and a mob starts to grow. British Captain Thomas Preston dispatches seven men to the custom house to, as he says, protect the sentry and the king's money. The more force the British bring to bear, the more radical the situation gets. The mob launches oyster shells and rocks packed in snowballs at the soldiers and dare them to shoot, yelling, fire, fire. The soldiers with muskets drawn and fixed bayonets are in a state of panic when suddenly a British private receives a severe blow to the head with a club and falls to the ground, causing his musket to discharge. In the melee, the soldiers open fire. Just days after Christopher Sider is buried, five more American colonists join him as martyrs in the struggle for freedom. What will be known as the Boston Massacre will be the rallying cry for colonists to fight for the unalienable rights we cherish today. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We will all regret this day. And when we come back, we'll continue with the final segment of this remarkable story. And we're picking the Boston Massacre trial and honing in on this one particular point 
in John Adams' life because it reveals so much about his nature, about his character, and what he really believed in. In the end, the deep principles that helped him and so many like him formulate the founding principles of our country. Hard ones to live by at the time, though. When we continue, the life of John Adams, the Boston Massacre trial, and the story of our nation's founding here on Our American Stories. continue with the story of John Adams. Just days after Liberty Boy Christopher Sider is buried, five more American colonists join him as martyrs in the struggle for freedom. What will be known as the Boston Massacre will be the rallying cry for colonists to fight for the unalienable rights we cherish today, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Here's Greg Hengler. We will all regret this day. The Boston Massacre becomes a huge propaganda effort for Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty. You've got an immediately famous engraving by Paul Revere. It is one of the most inaccurate pieces of propaganda ever produced by an American press. Almost nothing in it is correct. This is treason! This is an early instance in the colonies of the power of what we now call media to shape public opinion. Paul Revere's sensationalized engraving is considered one of the most effective pieces of propaganda in American history showing an orderly line of redcoats firing in unison into an unprovoked and unarmed crowd of patriots with blood spurting out of their bodies. Boston newspapers are quick to print and distribute Revere's version. John Adams is a short, chubby, and very pious fifth-generation descendant of Puritans who settled in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1632. After 12 years of practicing law, the 34-year-old Adams is working in his office when a prosperous merchant named James Forrest knocks on his door the day after the massacre. Mr. Adams, my name is Forrest. What happened to you? With tears streaming in his eyes, as Adam writes years later, the loyalist desperately asks Adams to defend Captain Preston and his men against the murder charges. Not even a single loyalist would take the case. No one else would plead his case. As Boston's most respected attorneys and political leaders, it would appear inconceivable that he would risk his reputation and his own safety, as well as the safety of his pregnant wife, Abigail, and their young son and future sixth president of the United States, John Quincy Adams, by agreeing to defend British men who were considered cold-blooded killers of American patriots. It will be John Adams' first murder trial. On the surface, it would appear that the distinction between the Adams cousins is made clearer when John takes the case to defend British soldiers. But behind the scenes, Samuel Adams' belief in the rights of man are deeper than his in-the-open, rough-and-tumble political tactics. 
John Adams was not eager to take the task. But Samuel persuaded his cousin on the basis of justice that these men deserved the best defense. That was an argument that could always sway John Adams. The trial in front of a packed courtroom begins on October 24th at Boston's new courthouse on Queen Street. John Adams draws upon his personal mistrust of mobs to construct a masterful defense of the British soldiers. Here's Kirk Ellis and John Adams from his autobiography and from the trial. He develops a defense that is based on the fact that this was a mob that was created and a situation of escalating violence was building. The part I took in defense of Captain Preston and the soldiers was the most exhausting and fatiguing cause I ever tried for hazarding my popularity and for incurring suspicions and prejudices which will never be forgotten as long as the history of this period is read. John Adams' ace in the hole trials is a deathbed confession from Patrick Carr. And what was it he said? He said he fired to defend himself. To defend himself! The doctor's testimony of Patrick Carr recounting a dying man's last words would be considered inadmissible, hearsay. But puritanical thinking gives John Adams an advantage. Justice Peter Oliver and the jury accept the deathbed testimony as irrefutable since it is believed that no one would dare lie so close before stepping into eternity to face God's final judgment. In instructing the jury, Justice Oliver addresses the complexities of the case when he tells them, If upon the whole ye are in any reasonable doubt of their guilt, ye must then declare them innocent. It marks the first known time a judge has used the phrase reasonable doubt in an American courtroom. Adams' defending argument to the jury includes this statement that has echoed throughout American courtrooms for longer than two centuries. Facts are stubborn things. See, whatever our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictums of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. We, the jury... The trial of Captain Preston lasts six days, and that of his troops lasts nine. Not guilty. These will be the first criminal trials in the colony's history to extend more than a single day. Not guilty. Adam's compelling defense wins an acquittal for six of the soldiers and two are found guilty of manslaughter, for which they are branded with an M for murder on their thumbs. This session adjourned. It is not only the soldiers Adams defends, but the law itself, which must remain free from man's politics, passions, and ever-shifting beliefs. Far from ruining his career, Bostonians realize that John Adams has won a victory for the colonies. He has shown England that colonists understand what justice means. The trial solidifies John Adams as the most respected and gifted legal mind in Boston, perhaps all of the colonies. For his part, Adams remembers the case with pride as one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered. 
one of the most gallant, manly, and disinterested actions of my whole life, and one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered my country. But to put that brilliant mind to use towards American independence, Sam Adams and his Sons of Liberty must first convince him to join them in open rebellion. Because when their struggle turns to war, they will need John Adams to persuade a people to defy their king and define the ideals of freedom and liberty upon which America will be built. Let's end this story with the man who started it. Here again is historian and John Adams biographer, David McCullough. I like to give credit where credit's due. In many cases, long overdue. I felt that way with John Adams. You remember the great scene in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid when the posse is chasing them? And the posse is not only keeping up with them, they're starting to gain a little bit. And one of them says to the other, who are those guys? And then they look again and they're getting closer and they're riding as well or better than Butch and Sundance are. And the other one said, who, who are those guys? And then, who are those guys? Well, that's the way I feel very often. Who were those founding fathers? And the more you know them, the better you know them, the more you realize how extraordinary what they did is because they were so human. And they had flaws and failings and had moments of gloom and despair, just like all of us. And yet they kept going. I know that it, it lifts us in spirit. It lifts us in our love of appreciation of those to whom we owe so much, but it also lifts us in an outlook on life that, for lack of, a, of another word, I would call optimistic. Now, it's not fashionable intellectually to be an optimist, but I am, because I've seen in my work again and again and again, it works out. They do it, they get there. And if there's a problem, if there's a over, overwhelming calamity, the nation's whole security and future is at stake, we've come through it. And so when people start saying, oh, it's a oh, country's going to hell, well, sure, it always has been. And, and, uh, and, and we're doing just fine. And then when people say, well, the taxes are too high and the cost of this and these damn politicians, I say, would you rather live somewhere else? Oh, no, 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 of course not. <laughs> Aren't we lucky? Aren't we really lucky to live in this country? And isn't it wonderful sometimes to be reminded that we are a good people and we've had great people bring us to where we are? Yes, there were terrible, rotten people, of course. And there, was, there were scoundrels and scamps and crooks and murderers, but there always have been, always will be. And just don't ever let us get so down about what might be happening at the moment in the way of less than admirable human beings. But remember how many good people there are and how much progress is being made in our own time beneficial to a better life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg, and it's always a pleasure to hear from David McCullough. And this story, well, it tells you everything about John Adams, that one moment in your life when you're up against everybody else, when you're alone. And it's you and your principles and how you act upon them. Well, it determines who you are. And it determined who John Adams was, no doubt. Great to hear this story and remind us of the founders of this great country. 
And it always reminds us of Hillsdale College as well. And they do all of our This Day in Histories. And whenever we do a history segment, we always like to plug their great work. Go to hillsdale.edu and listen to their Constitution 101 class. Watch it. Have the whole family watch it, too. It's terrific. And we can't hear the story enough about the founding of our country. John Adams' story, the Boston Massacre, the Boston Massacre Trial, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and today we're diving into one of my favorite books of the year, and we do a lot of books here on the show. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and see all that we do, and while we're there, or while you're there, sign up for our free newsletter, and again, that's ouramericannetwork.org. You'll get our five best stories of the week, and the book is Kicks by Nicholas Smith, and it's all about the history of sneakers. Before we start the story, Nicholas, I want to read two things from your prologue. Quote, sneakers can help us stand out or blend in. They can be the item we build our outfits up from or an afterthought we slip on before running out the door. And every sneaker we wear says something about us in both subtle and not so subtle ways. This was something I never actually thought about until I did. Was this true with you? And what led you to write this history of the sneaker? Well, I'm not what you would call uh, a traditional sneakerhead. I don't have a closet full of 50 different rare sneakers that are, you know, limited edition or things like this. Uh, I approach this story from a runner's perspective. I, uh, running is my hobby, so most of my sneakers are kind of running sneakers. And the more I researched the story, the more I kind of saw the appeal of shoes as a fashion item. It's not something I really sat down to, to think about, you know, like many people I had maybe just one pair of casual sneakers to, to go outside and go to uh, the grocery store with. But as I researched more into this, I started to see kind of the appeal of having a sneaker for this outfit or a sneaker for that outfit. Here's a very common item that for some people, it is, it is the basis of their outfit and everything that they're building up from kind of rests on the sneaker. And for other people, it's the complete afterthought. It's the last thing that they throw on before going out the door. And I think that's, that's really the, the most interesting thing about sneakers. Indeed. And my 13-year-old girl, the poor shoe people, because she has almost no shoes. She and all of her friends have 8, 10, and 12 pairs of sneakers for precisely the reasons you discussed, Nicholas. So it's an interesting trend, what's happening with younger people. You also wrote this in the prologue. The history of the sneaker is, in a sense, the recent history of the United States. I thought that was such an absurd statement when I read it, Nicholas. And that is until I started reading the book and the story. So let's start off at the beginning with the story of Charles Goodyear. Talk about this American innovator and businessman, because it's quite a story. 
we, we can't really tell the uh, the history of the sneaker or really many of the other objects that are everyday objects without telling the history of industry. And to go back to the beginning, to the Industrial Revolution, uh, Charles Goodyear was an inventor, kind of a, a tinkerer, a person who would be stuck in his basement trying to solve the problem of rubber. Now, the problem of rubber in the early uh, Industrial Revolution was it was very susceptible to temperature. Uh, when it was cold, it would turn brittle. When it was hot, it would melt. So as you can imagine, rubber products weren't very versatile. Uh, Goodyear uh, had the idea that rubber could be stabilized. And through his years and years of tinkering with different mixtures, different ways of preparing it, he perfected vulcanized rubber, which uh, is more resilient uh, to temperature. Now, without vulcanized rubber, we couldn't have, of course, uh, sneaker soles, but we also couldn't have uh, car tires or you, you know, so many different parts uh, that we rely on uh, today. So this was kind of a very uh, important uh, invention that Goodyear stumbled upon. Indeed it was, but before sneakers could take off, we also needed the idea of leisure time. That, too, would develop as America and the world industrialized. Yeah, people forget that the concept of the weekend is kind of a a very new concept. Now, kind of the the forerunner to the weekend and vacations for the working class was uh, called Wakes Weeks. Now, in Britain, during the Industrial Revolution, they would have to close the factories periodically to uh, you know, maintenance the machines and do service work. And during this time, the workers would take their holidays, or, or what we would call holidays. What was once the area of just the upper class, just having uh, so much free time that you could devote to hobbies or different things, was finally starting to trickle down to everyone else. And to fill that free time, we saw the growth of sports, of games, of hobbies, of, of many different things. And let's talk about one of those sports. Let's talk about James Naismith. Who was he? for folks who aren't avid basketball fans, and why is he such a big figure in your story? So James Naismith, of course, was the inventor of basketball. He was also a teacher at a uh, a YMCA. Now, as the story goes, it was a very cold, very dark winter near the turn of the century, and uh, his students were stuck inside, and he didn't know what to do with them. You know, those days, physical activity was calisthenics, aerobics, gymnastics, not something that's very competitive. So Naismith nailed up two peach baskets, one on each side of his gymnasium, and he had a a soccer ball with him. And he had, you know, two teams try to get that basketball into the peach basket on either side. What he found was his, his students took to it very quickly. He wrote down the rules and had them published in an academic journal, and this eventually spread to other YMCAs and then to other schools and then to other uh, universities across the country. So the game of basketball kind of benefited from having that set of rules travel around so quickly. Who's Chuck Taylor? We've seen his name stitched on Converse. He was a big player in your story. Now, Chuck Taylor isn't one of those figures uh, like that that was invented for a brand. He was an actual person. Converse was a 
company that's it's been around 100 years now today. But when uh, Chuck Taylor joined the company, it was the 1920s. Uh, he had just finished a very short career as a professional basketball player. And uh, w- when I say professional in those days, it's kind of more what we would consider uh, a semi-professional uh, basketball player. But he wasn't very distinguished, even among the players of the day. But he did have a good knowledge of the game. And this is what he brought to Converse when he was a salesman. He would travel from town to town putting on these basketball clinics. He's kind of the uh, the Johnny Appleseed figure of basketball. So in every town that he would visit, every clinic he would put on in schools or universities, he would teach the basics, he would teach some tricks. And, you know, of course, there was that little marketing message in there that, you know, in order to play basketball really well, you would need these Converse All-Star shoes. And after years of success, he decided to name the All-Star the Chuck Taylor shoe. So this is why, to this day, you, you see his name stitched on Converse Chuck Taylors everywhere in the world. And when we come back, more with Nicholas Smith. The book Kicks, the great American story of sneakers. is Our American Stories, and we're back with Nick Smith talking about his book, Kicks. We were just learning about the origin of Chuck Taylor's sneakers, shoes named after a salesman who was basketball's Johnny Appleseed. Can you think of a single product that's named after the salesman in a company, not the CEO, not the patriarch, the salesman? Because I racked my brain, Nicholas, and I couldn't think of one. You know, off the top of my head, no, and I'm sure if I thought about it for another couple hours, I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't think of any. And that kind of speaks to the marketing genius that uh, Chuck Taylor had. One of the other things that Converse did to kind of develop the game further is they published this uh, yearbook, kind of a who's who book of basketball of the day. So if your team wanted to be in the yearbook, you just had to send a photo of your, your team in and where you played and, and who all the players were. And of course, you had to wear the, uh, the Converse uh, you know, shoes in, in the, uh, the picture. But uh, in this book, Chuck Taylor would say, you know, here's, the, here's some tricks of the game. Here are the best players playing the game, and, you know, traveling from town to town. He really had an eye for who was good, who was an up-and-coming college player and Coaches called him for advice on, well, who should my scouts go after? So he was kind of a a self-developed expert in the game, and this earned him a place in the Basketball Hall of Fame. So, you know, here we have another example of a a salesman not only having his name on a shoe, but ending up in a sports Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's remarkable how he deployed every tool in the toolkit to sell. And actually, it just sounded to me from reading your book that he didn't think of himself as a salesman, but an evangelist for this ministry called basketball. Exactly. And, you know, part of that comes from his connection to the game. Because he was an actual player, he saw maybe a different side of it that a normal salesman uh, wouldn't see. So there was a, uh, a level of expertise that also attracted people to these clinics. Here you would hear uh, a professional player really tell you how to play. Here, here are the real tricks. Here's what, here's what the people are actually wearing. So it, it did have a, uh, a certain degree of expertise when he went around. That's great. And let's talk about a track coach 
who had a tremendous impact on the world of sneakers, sports, and the culture. Let's talk about Bill Bowerman. He coached nine sub-four-minute milers at the University of Oregon, the most of any coach in America, four NCAA team championships, 24 NCAA individual titles, and coached 33 Olympians. Some call him the Bear Bryant, the Nick Saban of the running world. That's perfectly accurate. He really knew the sport in and out, but uh, he would do experiments with everything having to do with running. He would, in his backyard, mix up different combinations of rubber to create uh, you know, a good running surface to run on. He would make the clothes that his runners wore the, out of the lightest material he could find, but he also uh, experimented with shoes. You know, in those days, there weren't uh, as many choices for running shoes as we have today. He surmised that the best running shoe was probably one that was made specifically for the athlete. You didn't waste any extra material. It was it, it fit perfectly. It, it didn't have an extra ounce on it that it uh, that it didn't need to have. So he would use his runners as kind of human guinea pigs while making his uh, his own shoe concoctions. Over time, he got a little better and, and better at it. And uh, this caught the eye of one of his uh, former students, a uh, runner by the name of Phil Knight. Now, Phil Knight had just returned from a, uh, a trip to Japan with a business idea. And uh, while he was in Japan, uh, he met with the executives of a company called Onitsuka Tiger. Now, we, we kind of know this company more as ASICs today. Uh, but in the, uh, the 1960s, they were, they were tiger shoes. They were still you know, fairly good shoes at the time. And Phil Knight says to his old coach, look, we can make, you know, some money importing these shoes, these Japanese shoes to the U.S. market because they are of similar quality to the Adidas and Puma uh, shoes that are out there, but of course cost much less. So of course, Bowerman jumped at the chance not only to, uh, you know, to, to have a little side money, but to also have the ear of a shoe company that would finally listen to him. So of course, over time, their company, which is called Blue Ribbon Sports, uh, gained more and more success, and they eventually spun off to a company that we know today as Nike. Now, the bones of Nike are built into, of course, running shoes and making kind of the, the perfect running shoe. So it, uh, it, it definitely came from an area of expertise. Indeed. And, and talk about a breakfast that changed Bowerman's life and waffles. Bowerman coached in Oregon. And uh, as, as we know, Oregon and the Pacific Northwest is very wet. You know, the running shoes of the day, the traction wasn't, wasn't great. Not, not enough to really grip mud, not enough to go over concrete very easily. And Bowerman was also obsessed with, with coming up some, some sort of pattern for the soul. And as the story goes, he's in the kitchen one Sunday. Wife is out. He sees the waffle iron, then he has an idea. It's like, wait a minute, the waffle pattern is the pattern I'm looking for. So he pours some molten rubber in the waffle iron, it gets stuck, and then he goes to the store to, to buy another waffle iron and, and you know does his test. And finally, he comes up with the, the waffle sole. Now, of course, the, the actual sole made for the shoes isn't made in the waffle iron. <laughs> the uh, waffle iron just provided the, the seed of the idea. But the, the waffle sole shoes proved to be a good enough grip for practically any surface. So this was kind of the, the beginning of the, uh, the jogging shoe uh, as we know it. And although jogging seems common and normal now, it wasn't always so, was it? You know, running as a hobby wasn't really, uh, wasn't really a thing. You know, if you 
went, went outside in the 50s and 60s and saw uh, someone running, it, uh, it, it would kind of strike you as odd. You know, the, the only people that might go out jogging were, you know, boxers training and kind of the, the local town nutcase, and that was it. <laughs> but in the 50s and 60s and, and going on to the 70s, it started to become kind of a, a new trendy thing to go outside and run just for exercise. When Bill Barman traveled to New Zealand with his uh, relay team, the coach there for the New Zealand Olympic team said, you know, why, why don't you come on a race uh, or just, just a Sunday run with us? So he says, okay. You know, track coach going on a run. Okay, it, it seems easy. But uh, what he discovered was he, Barman, couldn't keep up with, uh, with any of the people. And some of them were much, much older than him. They blazed by them. And he was wondering, okay, why, why is it that I can't keep up with these people, but they seem to just go for miles and miles. And the New Zealand track coach had a, a exercise regiment called jogging. So Bowerman took this idea, brought it back with him to, to Oregon, and kind of started the uh, very small jogging boom uh, in Oregon. So go across the coast to New York now. So another jogging boom was taking shape. Fred Lebo was working in the fashion industry in Manhattan, but he was also uh, an early jogger. And he is known today as the, the founder of the New York City Marathon. The early New York City marathons just went around Central Park a few times. But uh, Fred Lebo uh, had the idea that uh, by expanding the marathon across all five boroughs of the city, it can really kind of act as a, uh, an advertisement uh, for New York, not just an advertisement for the city, but also as an advertisement for jogging. You know, one person was saying that the best singles bar in New York was Central Park because you can just go up to uh, someone else that was jogging and strike up a conversation. So what uh, Fred Lebo did and what uh, Bill Bowerman did was kind of start an exercise movement, kind of the first exercise fad uh, that the U.S. has known. Dr. Ken Cooper is my personal doctor. I'm pretty fortunate to have him uh, for my annual checkups. And he wrote a book called Aerobics, which you talk about here as well. You know, I talked to Dr. Cooper just before this interview. I said, you know, what, what should I talk to Nicholas Smith about? And he reminded me that back when he was doing his work, and he had trained NASA astronauts, uh, worked in the Air Force, a, a remarkable doctor. But he was on this quest to prove that exercise, jogging, aerobics, would actually increase life expectancies and health. And he wanted to get people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s to start running. The medical establishment came down on him like a ton of bricks, that 50-year-olds would be dying in the streets, that this was a terrible idea. Well, there was kind of this thought that, uh, you know, any, any sort of physical activity was uh, dangerous if you weren't, quote-unquote, the, the right person. And uh, this is kind of something that... Uh, that uh, I'll, I'll come back to this New Zealand story that uh, Bill Barman went on when he saw, you know, a man come to his aid that was not only older than him, uh, but had survived a heart attack. Uh, this kind of, you know, woke something up in his mind that, you know, this, this cardiovascular exercise was in fact good for you. And, you know, what, what Dr. Cooper found was it, uh, you know, it doesn't matter really if you're young or old, if you're active, it does add years to your life. And when we come back, more of our conversation with Nicholas Smith, his terrific book, Kicks, the great American story of sneakers.
This is Our American Stories. We're back with Nicholas Smith, author of Kicks, the great American story of sneakers. And we were just talking about the rise of jogging and the start of the New York City Marathon. By the way, that first New York City Marathon you point out in the book had 55 finishers. That's, uh, that's quite, quite a movement from 55 to what we watch today on national television. Let's talk about women who were long excluded from running in marathons, even up to 1966. You tell one story of Bobby Gibb, who was 23. She entered the Boston Marathon, got her envelope, hoping to see an acceptance and a racing number. Instead, she found a note from the director of the race. I'm going to read it to you. Women aren't allowed and furthermore are not physiologically able. Talk about the reasons women were excluded from marathons and talk about one woman, Catherine Switzer, who changed everything. So uh, women weren't just uh, excluded from marathons. Uh, They were pretty much excluded from uh, every other sport all through the 70s. And, uh, you know, even... uh, college sports and women's colleges were uh, so segregated in the 10s and the 20s that men weren't even allowed to to come and watch unless you were a a relative of the women playing. It was considered uh, unladylike for uh, women to exert physical uh, activity. Now, um, that slowly and thankfully began to change in the 60s and the 70s. And Bobby Gibb was one of those people who kind of said, okay, I'm, I'm going to, to run the Boston Marathon, whether or not women are allowed to run or not. And, uh, you know, it did, uh, it did have some, uh, some pushback. And one of the people that uh, saw that pushback firsthand was uh, Catherine Switzer, who was the first woman to run the Boston Marathon with a number. Now, she was able to enter by uh, entering just her initials, KV Switzer to get her number. But once one of the uh, race officials saw that a woman was running the Boston Marathon, he you know, walked onto the course. He tried to, to shove her saying, give me your number. And uh, uh, Switzer's boyfriend kind of pushed him out of the way. And photographers riding by in a, in a truck caught all of this on camera. So all of this was on you know, newspapers uh, shortly afterwards. And you know, over time, uh, things started to relax in major races and women were allowed uh, to compete and there were women's only uh, races in the 70s or in the 80s and it uh, wasn't until the 1984 Summer Olympics that there was an actual women's marathon. All of this, by the way, Nicholas, was building up the market for running shoes and at the same time endorsements were also starting to influence the sneaker world. Before there was a Michael Jordan, there was a guy named Walt Clyde Frazier of the New York Knicks, and this is, by the way, back when they actually won games and even a championship or two. Well, uh, both Adidas and Puma uh, were starting to get the idea that, uh, you know, to sell a lot of shoes, we need to have a lot of people wear them. We needed to have a lot of players wear them. So uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had signed with Adidas. Puma was looking for uh, a big star of the day to sign with. And Walt Frazier was kind of a, he's a very extravagant player, both on the court and off. He had a, a, a fashion sense that people used to tease him about. His, his nickname, Clyde, uh, kind of came from the movie Bonnie and Clyde because he had this uh, hat that reminded his uh, players uh, of the movie. So he was very fashion conscious. 
so Puma approached him uh, with an idea uh, to have a signature shoe. Now, this would have been, you know, the first professional uh, signature shoe basketball player. Now, you think, okay, well, what about, uh, you know, Chuck Taylor? That was also a signature shoe. But it wasn't, uh, it wasn't made when he was still playing in the game. It was named afterwards. So, you know, Clyde would have this very stylish uh, shoe uh, that he would wear in the games. And, of course, this is a key moment because this is around the time when sneakers started to move off of the courts, off of the playing fields, and into everyday life. People started wearing them uh, around the streets. So the Clyde shoe was very popular, especially in New York, because you had one of the biggest New York Nick players wearing a shoe that you could also buy and you know just wear with any sort of outfit. And besides that, he's a very you know fashion conscious, stylish player. So any way to emulate him that you can afford, especially the shoe, is uh, is going to sell. Indeed. And by the way, it's the first suede shoe, which I, I remember because I had one of these Clydes. My goodness, if it rained and you know New York weather, if it snowed, my Pumas, my Clydes never touched the ground. Yeah, there, there was a, uh, I think, a Puma executive who said something along the lines of, you know, we, we love it when it rains in New York because, or when it rains or snows, because that means we're going to sell a whole lot more suede shoes. Indeed. So uh, I, I don't know if it was a conscious decision uh, by uh, by the company, but, uh, you know, you have to kind of be mindful of what the weather is like if you want to keep your sneakers looking very nice. And also in the 70s, a drought and water restrictions in California gave rise to a different type of fashionable sneaker, a more durable kind that could take the punishment dished out by skateboarders. Talk about that. This is one of my most favorite surprises of the things that I researched for this book. Now, skateboarding went through several different phases. In the 50s and 60s, there was kind of a, a sidewalk surfer craze where, you know, it was uh, something that you can do was kind of like surfing, but on land, but this eventually died out. But it wasn't really until uh, the 70s and the uh, California drought in the middle of the 70s that skateboarding started to take shape as we would recognize it today. The, the reason that happened stretched back to Scandinavia, to an architect that designed a kidney-shaped pool. And another architect, very famous architect in California, saw this and brought that kidney-shaped pool to a house he was building in California. And, of course, this uh, you know, copy I eye of other developers and suddenly kidney-shaped pools were everywhere in California. So fast forward to the 1970s, you have this drought. Uh, there's not water to have in the pools, so all the pools are empty. So the, uh, the kids that are skateboarding are skateboarding because maybe the waves are flat that day. They're, they're, they come from a surfing background. And then they see these empty pools all over the city with uh, curved and sloped sides. So perfect for riding a skateboard up and down. And eventually they found that they can go very fast down these pool walls, shoot themselves up and do tricks in the air and then land. And this sort of thing was unheard of in skateboarding at the time. Tricks would be kind of, um, you know, handstands on a skateboard. This, this would be a good trick, not, uh, you know, flying through the air, turning around a few times and then landing. So as this kind of gonzo approach to skateboarding uh, happened, it started to gain more and more popularity as kind of a, an underground youth thing. But where shoes come into play is, as you can imagine, if you're going up and down pools, you know, you're going to fall, your shoes are going to take a beating. And there's this company called Vans, the, the Van Dorn Rubber Company that was based in California. 
And uh, they were famous for, you know, not making uh, mass-produced shoes that were the same everywhere. If you wanted to have a shoe in a certain pattern, they would make it for you. They, they had the, uh, the shoemaking machinery. They had the uh, retail outlets. So they were really kind of, uh, you know, completely vertically integrated. And after a while, they saw that, you know, people were demanding shoes that kind of uh, needed to hold up um, to a, a beating. They were, van shoes were tougher uh, than other shoes at the time. So skateboarders of the day kind of gravitated towards this, that, you know, it's better to buy a, uh, a shoe that was more durable than a shoe that would you know, fall apart and you would have to replace over and over. So the uh, skateboarders that were skating the pools, they... Um, you know, tended towards Vans shoes because they were tough and also because they were stylish. You can get them in you know, almost whatever color uh, that you wanted, which was, you know, a little bit unheard of at, at the time when shoes came in white, they came in black, or they came in like a dark navy blue, and that was it. So you had a combination of a uh, an underground subculture that had a very a specific demand for a shoe and also there was this fashion angle that they wanted it to you know look how they wanted it to look so this a combination of all of these different factors kind of contributed to not just the success of vans but just uh, the concept of the trendy sports shoe and more on the american sneakers story here on our american stories back with Nicholas Smith and we're talking about his book a really great read kicks about the history of American sneakers the next big influence in the world of sneakers didn't come from the sports world it came from the music world breakdancing and then soon after rap artists like Run DMC and the Beastie Boys would have their influence on the world of sneakers talk about that period so before we get to the 80s, we'll have to stretch back a decade and talk about the 70s. Now, earlier I mentioned, uh, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar would have the, you know, Adidas shoe and Walt Frazier would have his Puma shoe. These shoes proved very popular in the, the budding uh, hip-hop movement. You know, as people were starting to develop uh, and invent breakdancing, people wanted to have a, a, a style all to themselves. So these breakdancing crews would often dress the same. And, you know, they would all be wearing the same pairs of Adidas, or they would all be wearing the same pairs of Nike or of the, uh, the Puma shoe. So these shoes were already kind of built in to a subculture. Now, when a hip-hop group like Run DMC comes along, they originally didn't have the uh, the style that we know them of today. They didn't have the black leather jackets, the Adidas track suits, the the hats, or the uh, the famous black and white superstar shoe. They dressed in you know kind of uncool looking plaid suits. But it wasn't until they started dressing like the uh, the Queen's neighborhood uh, that they came from that they started to kind of develop their own identity. And part of this identity came in that Adidas superstar shoe. Now, of course, if you have a very popular group, 
you know, wear a certain style of shoe. And if you're, you know, a fan of that group, you're probably going to wear the, the shoe or the brand yourself. And there was a, a famous incident where they were at a, a concert in Madison Square Garden. And just before they performed their famous song about their favorite shoe, my Adidas, they asked everyone in the audience to, to hold up their shoes. And all of these Adidas shoes went in the air. Now, fortunately, an uh, executive from Adidas was in the audience, and he saw the power that, that the band had. And they were the first non-sports figures to have a shoe contract for an athletic shoe company. Let's talk about the year 1984 and Nike. It was a big year, but it was a bad year. They just posted their first ever quarterly loss. They were even into layoff mode. They needed to do something big and in the nation's biggest sport when it came to sneakers, and that's, of course, basketball and the NBA. You write about the fact that there were three big-name prospects that everyone thought Nike should pursue. John Stockton, who ended up at the Jazz, Charles Barkley at the Sixers, and Hakeem Olajuwon at the Houston Rockets. But a fourth name came up. Talk about number four, because he would help transform the company, and Nike made a big and astronomical bet on number four. Nike had shoes on players, but they didn't have shoes on the right players. And they wanted to kind of target some up-and-coming names in the 1984 draft. Now, that fourth name, Michael Jordan, they could have just offered him the same shoe contract as they were going to with, uh, with John Stockton and the others. But uh, the key point here is we're not going to uh, give Jordan just any old shoe contract like we've been giving the pros for the past couple of years. We're going to build an entire line, an entire signature shoe line and apparel line around Michael Jordan. Because they did this, and because Jordan was such uh, an electric player, they kind of invented something new. Now, of course, there was Clyde Frazier earlier, but there wasn't really the full force of a company's marketing behind one single player. One single player kind of presented as his own brand, the Air Jordan brand. And as Jordan started to get better and better, of course, people wanted to you know, know why was he so good. Uh, a couple years after they started coming out with the Air Jordan shoe, they, they wanted to try something new with the marketing. So they hired a very young director named Spike Lee to direct a series of commercials starring him as his character, Morris Blockman from his first movie, and Michael Jordan. Now, these commercials were revolutionary for the time. Other sneaker commercials starring NBA stars were a bit cheesy. They were a bit you know, they, they they didn't really sell the product as much as, you know, okay, Larry Bird is wearing, you know, this brand of shoes, so you should also wear it. But what the uh the Spike Lee and, and Michael Jordan commercials did, they were they were funny. They were lighthearted. They didn't seem quite like a shoe commercial. They were kind of a, a comedic pairing with uh, Michael Jordan acting as the straight man. Now, the big tagline from these uh Spike Lee and Michael Jordan commercials was, you know, what makes Michael so great? Is it, uh, you know, the, the way he jumps? Is it, uh, you know, his haircut? Is it, is it the shoes? And is it the shoes? This became kind of the, uh, you know, the, the seed that Nike wanted to plant in everyone's mind. Okay, well, if, you know, Michael can do all these things in the Air Jordan shoe, well, maybe the Air Jordan shoe can help you play basketball better. Maybe it can help you jump higher. So there was kind of this 
this magic that Nike was tapping into with the Spike Lee and Michael Jordan commercials. And I don't know if this was conscious of them at the time, but it's a, kind of a very old idea of the magical shoe. Now, what, uh, what makes Cinderella a princess? It's the glass slipper. What makes Dorothy come back from the land of Oz? It's her ruby slippers. What makes Michael Jordan jump so high? It's got to be the shoes. It's got to be the shoes. By the way, you, you also talk about this remarkable business deal. Jordan got royalties not only on the sale of each Air Jordan sold, but all Nike Air sneakers. What a big risk to take. But by the way, what big rewards for Jordan and for Nike, that deal? Oh, for sure. You know, without really the success he had on the court and without the success he had with Nike, we wouldn't have an entire Jordan brand spun off from Nike. It's funny, he's, you know, been out of the game for so many years, but Nike Air Jordans are, you know, still still worn by people everywhere. You know, they still come out with new uh, Air Jordans all the time. There's new versions of uh, different colors of the old Air Jordan shoes from the 80s. So it was kind of a... Uh, a unique way that really paid off for both the player and the company. Tell the story of where Nike got their new slogan, just do it, because it's a pretty unlikely source. This kind of came, you know, from uh, the least likely source that you can think of. There was a a murderer uh, on death row and he uh, was, you know, okay, well, what are your last words? And they were, you know, along the lines of, okay, well, let's do this. Now, one of the executives saw this, he kind of thought, okay, well, I'll follow that away. And when it became time to, you know, think up of a, a new slogan for the company, this popped into his head, just do it. You know, we know now that uh, Just Do It, it's as much a part of Nike as the, the swoosh is. So it's, it's so baked into the company's DNA that it's difficult to, to separate them. And I should also add that uh, when the uh, Just Do It slogan came out, it, it became kind of a, uh, a rallying cry, a point of pride for people. It, uh, you know, inspired them to, to do more. It inspired them to get out and exercise. Uh, there was one story where someone wrote into the company saying, I, I finally left my husband because I heard this slogan. So it, uh, it kind of, uh, again, tapped into a much greater idea uh, that was there that, you know, people sometimes need that little push. I can only guess most Americans now uh, have at least a few sneakers in their closet. We had started off this way, we'll come close to ending this way. But I look around now, Nicholas, and I mean, people are wearing sneakers almost all the time in business casual situations. I see men in sneakers routinely and women. Yeah, sneakers have kind of become the uh, the default shoe, whether we are going to the office or going to the uh, the supermarket. It's, uh, you know, what we... Uh, throw on to look nice or it's what we throw on just to have something on our feet and we can thank the uh the birth of casual friday for bringing the uh, sneakers into the boardroom indeed last thing what surprised you most telling this epic story of the sneakers i know i was sideswiped by this book and absorbed because in so many ways just as you had said early on this is the story of 20th century american culture I guess what surprised me most when I looked into it more and more, sneakers were there at so many different junctures in the 20th century. You know, even U.S. soldiers trained in sneakers going to uh, World War II. What I'm fascinated by is, let's take the Converse All-Star, for example. 
This is a shoe that, you know, if you're a, a punk rocker, you might wear. Or if you're a, you're a teenager wanting to look hip, uh, you might wear. Or if you are, are a little bit older, may have worn in gym class many decades ago. It's a shoe that, that means so many different things to so many different people. I, I recently got back from a uh, vacation in Venice, Italy, and I saw an old nun wearing a pair of Converse all-star sneakers, the, the Chuck Taylor shoes. So it, it's really a shoe that's, that's just become almost generic, even though it was at one time a very specialized piece of athletic equipment. Yeah, I can't think of any American fashion brand in which I actually wore Chuck Taylors and I played I played high school basketball and my daughter is wearing Chuck Taylors the old man and the daughter wearing the same exact sneaker where else in American fashion exactly and you know <laughs> that that sneaker will probably be around for a, a long long time after that well Nicholas thanks so much for your time and thanks for kicks the great American story of sneakers well thank you for having me and that was Nicholas Smith. The book Kicks, the great American story of sneakers, and it's available on Amazon. And by the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org if you like what you hear and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You'll get the five best stories of the week. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and just sign up. And by the way, send the link to friends if you like what you're hearing. Nicholas Smith and the Sneakers Story of America. Nicholas Smith, the stories of sneakers in America. Here on Our American Stories.